Good morning. It's good to see everybody here today. We are going to be today in Acts chapter 14. We're actually going to finish chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 19 through 28. We're going to wrap up Paul's first missionary journey. The title of this message is Resurrection Life in a World of Death. I'm going to read through our text. Acts 14, 19 through 28. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished." When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. Oh, Lord, we ask that you be with us today as we look into this word, that you open it up to us, that we, that you show us your love and your grace and your goodness toward us and, and your calling upon us as those who have been bought with a price, as those who have been loved by you. Oh, Lord, we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they provide us with four accounts from different perspectives of the life ministry, including both His signs, His miracles, and His teaching, and then the death, burial, resurrection, commissioning of His disciples, and then ascension into heaven of the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate. That's what we see in the the Gospels. And the commission that He gave His people before ascending into heaven was that they would, every single one of them, be filled with the Spirit. And they would take the message of His incarnation, His substitutionary death, His resurrection, and His ascension to the throne of His kingdom They would take that message to everyone in the world. That's the commission. 
Satan appears as an angel of light. And from the beginning, he has deceived the whole world into believing darkness is light and death is life. That's all he does. He's very good at it. It's what he did with Eve there in the garden in the very beginning. He made darkness look like light. And he got Adam and Eve to believe that, that death was actually life. And that's what he does today. Well, in his life, death, and resurrection... Jesus bound Satan. He stripped him of his ability to deceive the nations and and keep them in darkness and and hold them captive in his kingdom of darkness and death. That's the gospel message. And the book of Acts that we're going through is the story of that message going forth. First in Jerusalem, And then in Judea and Samaria, and then to what we're seeing now, to the ends of the earth. As the gospel goes forth, the kingdom of Christ advances and takes ground from this kingdom of darkness and death. This kingdom that the Apostle John tells us is passing away. So this world is passing away. Actually, um, that's in 1 John 2.17. He says, The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The literal translation of passing away is actually is being pushed out. So the kingdom of Christ is advancing, and it's pushing out this kingdom of darkness and death. The historical record of Acts is literally the story of what that looks like. That's what we're seeing as we go through this. As the apostles go from town to town preaching, they go from town to town. What are they preaching? They're preaching. I love the way it was described early on whenever Peter was preaching in Jerusalem. And they got in trouble because they're preaching in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. That's what they're preaching. Well, as they preach that, the kingdom of light and life is clashing with the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world. It's actually making war on the kingdom of this world. You didn't know that, did you? Whenever you tell someone about Jesus and what He's done, it's an act of war. We're in a war. We're in a war for light and life. And what we're fighting against is darkness and death. And the gospel of Jesus is, that's our weapon of warfare. The Word of God, the Word of the Lord. It's this Word that's going forth. And as the apostles go forth in Acts and they go from town to town and they preach the Word of the Lord, the kingdom of Christ advances and takes ground. That's what we've been seeing from the beginning, and we're going to continue to see is that this kingdom is moving forward. The kingdom of Christ is taking ground. But but what happens? In any military conflict, when your army is advancing and attacking the enemy, what can you expect the enemy to do? Well, the answer is fight back. Return fire. 
do whatever they can to slow your advance. And that's what we've been seeing from the beginning of Acts until now. The gospel moves forward. The kingdom of Christ takes ground. And the enemy pushes back. The world pushes back. The darkness pushes back. There's always opposition. At the beginning of this chapter, in Acts, actually starting in verse 8 through 18 last week, we saw Paul and Barnabas ministering in the open air. Remember I said it's probably a town square in the town of Lystra, which is in the eastern part of Galatia, modern day Turkey. And a lame man was given faith in Christ. As an outward sign of that faith, he was healed. He was healed of his lameness. And it was an outward display of what had happened inwardly. Inwardly, he'd been raised from spiritual death, from spiritual lameness. And he'd been raised to life. And, and that was outwardly demonstrated and he was given the ability to walk. He'd never walked. He didn't know what walking was. But he's raised up. Well, immediately the enemy pushes back. Not really in a way that you would expect. And a lot of times the enemy attacks by doing a flank maneuver. And that's what he did here. The enemy pushed back there by getting the crowds to focus on the healing. To focus on the flesh. And they wanted to exalt Paul and Barnabas. They decided they must be gods. We're going to exalt them to deity rather than listening to the message that they're preaching, which is the gospel which is repentance toward God and faith in Christ, eternal life. Well, when Barnabas and Paul figured out what was going on, they rushed out into the crowd and they just kept urgently pointing them to the one true God and pointing them to Christ and, and telling them that there's only one saving gospel. But you know, even in doing that, they were only barely able to restrain the crowds from just entering into public idolatry. And that's where we're at today in verse 19. It says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Well, why do the Jews hate Paul? Well, if you haven't been here before, we've been talking about it, and they, they're following him from town to town because Paul is preaching the Scriptures but he's not preaching Judaism. He's not preaching their religion. He's preaching Christ from the Scriptures. He's preaching eternal life and salvation in Christ alone. And people are believing. And they're turning to Christ. They're believing the Gospel. They're not turning to Judaism. They're not becoming Israelites. They're not getting circumcised in the flesh. They're becoming true Israelites. They're turning to Christ and they're being born again. They're being saved. And so these religious Jews, they don't like that. They're jealous. So everywhere Paul goes, they follow along and they, they oppose. And that's what happens here in verse 19. They had followed from Antioch and Iconium and they come down there and they're opposing the message. And you know, it's possible that this happened on the same day that the lame man was healed. 
And, and you know, that same day that the crowds wanted to make sacrifices to Barnabas and Paul, they were calling them Zeus and Hermes, these Greek gods. You know, the crowds were disappointed with the outcome. And you know, the Jews who had come from Antioch and Iconium to oppose the gospel may have just seized on the opportunity to stir them up against Paul. However, Luke doesn't indicate in the text whether this happened that day or, or whether time had elapsed with Paul and Barnabas continuing to proclaim the gospel there in Lystra. I kind of lean toward the idea that some time had elapsed before the Jews came down from Antioch and Iconium because in verse 20, after the Lystran crowds had uh, left Paul for dead outside the city, it says that the disciples, plural, the disciples stood around him. So that indicates that there was more than just the lame man that was healed. Um, Evidently, they'd been there long enough that there's multiple converts. Not just the lame man who was healed in verse 10. That's not absolute proof. There could have been other converts at that time that just weren't mentioned. It doesn't really matter. The point is, when the gospel is advancing, opposition will be there as well. And the focus of the opposition is to do whatever it takes to either corrupt and refocus the message on the physical realm. You know, that was what the enemy tried first. First, we're going to see if we can just corrupt the message. We'll get them to take the focus off of Christ and eternal life in Him and the Gospel. And we'll, we'll turn the focus to Barnabas and Paul. We'll even stroke their egos a little bit. People will worship them. Make sacrifices to them. But that didn't work. So when that didn't work, what are they going to do? Are they going to try to stop, silence the gospel message by any means necessary or whatever means are available? You know, it's, it's really significant that the same crowds who wanted to worship Paul as deity when they thought he might have some power that they could harness for their own gain and manipulate to their own advantage... It's significant that they were so ready to stone Paul and kill him when it became evident that they couldn't control him for their own purposes. That's the way it is in a world of people given over to death. You know, that's, that's what we live in. We live in a world of people that is get the world and all the people in it are given over to death. And when you live in a world like that, the maximum, highest goal, and logic dictates this, in a world that's given over to death, the highest goal is just maximum pleasure and happiness. What makes me happy? For the moment. There's a guy who made a whole lot of money telling you how to live your best life now. That's what makes sense in a world given over to death. 
Just live your best life now. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we may die. And anyone or anything that gets in the way of our flesh, our happiness, our satisfaction, our gain, anyone that gets in the the way of that or inconveniences us must go. You know, this is the world of abortion. This is the world of addiction and depression. And the sad truth is that we all know it. We all know it. There's a line in an old song. It's going to date me to say it, but the old song, the line is, don't you know that you are a shooting star and all the world will love you just as long as you are? The rest of it should say, and only as long as you are. Only as long as you're bringing entertainment Joy, happiness, and pleasure. This is the truth about a world that will worship you one minute and stone you the next. It's a world given over to death. And this world and the people in it will always push against the gospel. In John chapter 3, verse 19, it says, This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. What does light do when it shines in the darkness? It pushes it out. It exposes us to the fact that the things we're living for are in fact vain things. That's what Paul and Barnabas were telling those people when they wanted to worship them in verse 15. They said, we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Light exposes the vain things that are perishing the pleasures that fade away, all these things that are speeding us on to death. And you know what? In our deceived, spiritually lame state, we don't like it. We don't like for the light to come in and expose what's in the darkness. So they stoned Paul and they drug him out of the city and they left him for dead. And verse 20 says, But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. You know, the disciples were standing around him not really knowing what to do. He's laying there, dead. <laughs> but suddenly he got up. Now that must have got their attention. It's interesting that Luke doesn't tell us if Paul really was dead or not. He just tells us that the crowd that stoned him supposed him to be dead. And then it says that he got up. So was he dead or was he unconscious and then just revived? 
I think he was probably dead. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about a time that was 14 years prior to that when he was caught up into heaven. I think it's possible that this was the time. This crowd had stoned him. They drug him out of the city. They would have checked for vitals. They would have probably, if they were supposing him to be dead, I think they would have checked. And, and something about stoning, we, we really don't have a concept of what someone being stoned to death is like or what it looks like. Have you ever seen something like that? I haven't. But I, but I was thinking about it. You know, the person being stoned would be hit with stone after stone. It's not like you just get hit with a few rocks and then you die. I mean, all of us have probably been hit with a rock or a dirt clod at one time, and it stings, but it's not a big deal. But that's not, that's not what the picture is. A person being stoned would be hit with stone after stone everywhere. The face, the head, the body, the legs, and the stones would be of all different sizes. Not just little smooth rocks. And they're probably going to be as big as the thrower could handle based on availability. And they're going to be thrown as hard as the thrower could throw them. And toward the end, the people throwing the stones are going to be standing above the person being stoned. The victim is laying on the ground and the people are standing there throwing the stones down on them just as hard as they can. And the ground is behind them ensuring that there is no rolling with the punches or absorbing of the shock. You kind of get an idea. The victim of a stoning would be an unrecognizable mass of broken skin and likely some broken bones. The idea that Paul was just unconscious for a while and then he hopped up and headed back into town just isn't really feasible. It's not. But you know what? As, as, as solemn as that picture is, as, as harrowing as it is, if you get that idea in your head, that picture, that's not what really blows my mind about all this. Not that he could get up and go into town, but that he did. You think about that? When Paul got up, when the Lord raised him up, because that's what happened whether he was dead or not. Because you know that he had to have been horribly and severely injured, even if he wasn't dead. The Lord raised him up and healed him. But what astonishes me is not as much that he could get up and enter the city, but that when he did get up, he did enter the city. He got up and walked right back into the place where they just stoned him. Supposedly to death. And not even considering the physical pain that he went through and what he suffered in that, Forget about that. He goes right back into the place where it's just almost certain that if they see him, they're going to try to finish the job. 
And it's not likely that they wouldn't recognize him because there's not going to be anybody else walking around looking like that. But he was willing to take the risk. Why? Why? What would make him willing to get up and go right back into the place where they just tried to kill him and thought they had succeeded? I'm going to say it's because Paul had seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. You know, he'd been at the top of the world as far as worldly achievement was concerned. He, he goes through the laundry list of all of his achievements in another part of Scripture. He was at the top of the world. But after seeing the face of the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he said he counted everything, everything, that he'd ever achieved, everything he could ever have, everything including life itself is worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. He said in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. You know what he's saying? He said, I've died with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Beloved, I am really convicted by this. I mean, I am convicted by this. Are you convicted by this? Think, think about it. If you and I are Christians, if we have eternal life, it's because Jesus, the Son of God, the One who's been seated on the throne of heaven for all eternity, loved us and gave Himself up for us. Paul, who had hated Jesus. He hated Him and he'd done everything he could to stomp out the message of the Gospel and to persecute the people of Christ. He came to see that the Son of God loved him and gave Himself up for him anyway. Anyway. In spite of that, he says in another place, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the chief. You want to see what a sinner is? Look at me. But Jesus loved me. And He gave Himself up for me. And you know what I see? What, you know what that did to Paul? It drove him to love. He says the love of Christ constrains me. It's not his love for Christ he's talking about. He's, it's the love of Christ. The love of Christ who loved me and gave himself up for me. It constrains me. And it got him up and it drove him to walk back into that city. This city full of murderers who, who just tried to stone him to death.
It, it, for, it convicts me and it forces me to examine myself. First, because I don't love people like I ought to. And second, even more importantly, I don't love the Lord like I ought to. Because that's, that's the reason why I don't love people like I ought to. If I love, you know what? There's a reason why the first and second greatest commandments are what they are. Because you have to have the first before you can have the second. What is the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord. <laughs> love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if you do that, you know what? You're going to love His people with all your heart also. You're going to love them as yourself. And actually, Jesus said, He raised the bar on that. He said, not only are you going to love your neighbors yourself, if you love me, if you're truly my disciple, you know how people are going to know it? You're going to love them like I loved you. That's how people know you belong to me. You're going to love each other the way I've loved you. Well, how did He love us? He gave Himself up for us. He gave Himself up for us. He didn't do what benefited Him. He did what benefited us. Forsaken so that we wouldn't be. Perishing so that we can live. You know, I'm not saying this to beat y'all up or to beat myself up. It's just something we really need to think about. We need to be aware of this and remind ourselves of it. Our purpose in this life as Christians is to love the Lord with all of our hearts and to imitate Him by loving other people the way He has loved us. Period. That that can work itself out in our lives through lots of different pursuits, through lots of different giftings and lots of different things that the Lord gives us to do and calls us to do. But you know what? The bottom line is that's why we're here. To love the Lord and to love His people. The next day, Paul and Barnabas, they go on into Derby. It's the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. It's, it's another Lyconian. They're in the, Lyconia, the district of Lyconia in Galatia, kind of southeast Turkey in modern day terms. And uh, it's about 60 miles southeast of Lystra. So they get up and they take a road trip. Derby means juniper tree in the Lyconian language. In 25 B.C., Augustus Caesar had incorporated it into the province of Galatia and made it a border town. So it's not a huge town. It's a border town, kind of out on the frontier. And verse 21 says, After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Luke doesn't tell us how long Paul and Barnabas were at Derby. It had to be a while. How long does it take to make a disciple? It says they preached the gospel in Derby and they made many disciples. 
Somehow, I just don't see Paul, Barnabas, and Luke regarding disciple-making as simply getting decisions and then moving on. The world that they're ministering in, this world that Paul and Barnabas are are going forth and preaching the, the Word of the Lord in, has no concept of Christianity. It's a pagan world. They worship nature or they have a pantheon of so-called gods. They don't know anything about Christianity. Uh, now by God's providence, through the dispersion of Israel by the Assyrians, there are little pockets of Jews here and there. And so there is some access to very limited access to scriptures and a little bit of knowledge of the God of the Jews, this one God that the Jews worship. But there's no knowledge of Christianity and very little knowledge even of Judaism and especially out in the frontier like this. They're starting at scratch. They've likely been worshiping an animal or a statue or nature. So when they're making disciples on these missionary journeys, what they're doing is they're teaching people courses in world history, how everything came about. They're teaching people who God is, the nature of man, what God has done in Christ to reconcile us to Himself, to give us eternal life. And you know what else they'd teach them? They'd have to teach them what that means, how that applies how we're to live in light of that. You have to teach superstitious pagans who've been living in a culture of death where everything is about what benefits me now. And everything is darkness. You've got to teach them to love the Lord and love their neighbor. Now, if they're in Christ, they have new hearts. They have the Spirit of God living in them. And so that helps you. But they're still in the flesh, just like we are. And we struggle, and we've got all sorts of knowledge and help. We've got Bibles in all of our homes. We've got books. We've got access to preaching and teaching and fellowship. These people out on the frontier, they don't have any of that. But they've got Paul and Barnabas teaching them. They've got the Holy Spirit in them. And so they spent a significant time there in Derby making disciples. And then it says they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, all these other Galatian cities where they had preached. And they had both success, people were converted. And they faced opposition. So what did they do? As they were closing up and finishing off this mission journey. In verse 22, it says, Strengthening the souls of the disciples. Encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. They strengthened the souls of the disciples in those cities. You know what's amazing and glorious about this verse, about the beginning of it? It's that word in the plural, disciples. 
the Lord has granted that there be disciples in all these cities who need encouragement. They need their souls to be strengthened. The kingdom of Christ has advanced. It's advanced into the kingdom of this world, this darkness and death. And it's carved out territory. It's taking ground. Churches are planted and they're formed in these places. And the light is now shining in each of these places where formerly it wasn't. I love the way Jesus describes this in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1 and verse 20 says, He describes it at every church as a lampstand. That's the way He describes the churches. He doesn't just say the church has a lampstand. The church is a lampstand. And it's a lampstand through which He is shining the light of His gospel into this world and pushing out the darkness. And He's bringing the light of life. And Paul encourages them. He he goes to all these lampstands, all these churches, and he encourages them by telling them, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's encouraging, isn't it? You're going to have lots of tribulations. Well, it is when you realize what it means. It's not the tribulations that's encouraging, it's entering the kingdom of God. We get eternal life in the kingdom of God. Everybody experiences tribulations. Everybody. The world experiences tribulations. Everyone in the world does. Every pagan unbeliever experiences tribulation. The world tries to focus their attention, though, always on youth and joy and excitement, entertainment and pleasure. The world's full of it. Just think about our culture. We're surrounded by entertainment. We've got sports, we've got music, we've got programming, we've got concerts, we've got all sorts of activities to distract us. You know what it's there for? It's to take our minds and our focus off the fact that we're dying. That we're going to perish, that we're suffering, that we have pain, that we get sick. That we're in distress, that we're we're separated from God. That's what all of this is for. All the worldly distractions are there to distract us from death. The world is sick. The world gets hurt. The world suffers. The world loses loved ones. The people of the world face opposition. They get persecuted. They suffer defeat. And ultimately, they die without hope. Paul tells some people in another text, he says, you know what? No temptation has come upon you except what's common to man. Yeah, you're going to go through tribulations. We're going to face all of these things. We'll even face them to a greater degree sometimes because we're in Christ and because... Or at least we're going to face them separated from the people of the world because of us being in Christ. We don't belong to this world. We don't belong to this kingdom. We belong to the kingdom of Christ. But you know what? No matter what tribulations come our way, we get to enter the kingdom of God. We're like Peter when um, Jesus is 
traveling and he's preaching and he said some really hard things. He's got crowds of people following him. But he knows that most of them don't really believe. They're just following him because of the goodies he can give them. They're just following him because they want to manipulate him and use him for their own gain. He turns around and says some really hard things to them and most of them leave. And he turns to his disciples, turns to the twelve, and he says, well, you also go away. Well, Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We get to enter into life. So it's encouraging. Verse 23 says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They appointed elders. Notice that S, plural, in every church. It says every church. There's no qualifications for multiple elders based on church size or cultural context. The biblical model for church leadership is multiple qualified elders who support each other, hold each other accountable, and shepherd Christ's sheep together. And they appointed them. This is how they dealt with the fact that they're out here on the frontier. They're, they're pagans. They, they grew up in pagan environment. They don't know Christianity. They just now have come to see the glory of God in Christ and to believe in Him. And they need to be shepherded. They need help. They need to grow in grace. And you know what? The apostles, they, they pick out the most spiritually mature, the, the, the ones who know the most, maybe the ones who can read the Scriptures. They say, okay, you're going to be an elder. You're going to shepherd this flock. <laughs> you're responsible to God for the souls of these people. And they picked out multiple elders for each church to encourage them, to shepherd them, and to teach them, and to help them grow in grace. That's the purpose. And they fasted and they prayed for each church. And they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You know, everything that was of value to Paul, he committed to the Lord. Have you done that? Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12, Paul's talking to Timothy. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Well, if you want to know what was important to Paul and what he preached, there it is right there. Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought light, life and immortality to light through His gospel. 
for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him, what I have committed to him. He's able to keep it. He's able to preserve it until that day, until the day that he returns. Paul couldn't stay there with those little churches that he planted all over Galatia. You know what he could do? He could commit them to the Lord. He could entrust them to the Lord. We've committed this church to the Lord. It belongs to Him and He's more than able to keep it. Charla and I have committed our children and our grandchildren to the Lord. We still pray for them. We still encourage them with the Word of the Lord. We still do do those things. That doesn't mean you don't do those things. But we've committed them to the Lord, to His keeping. They belong to Him. He's more than able to save them and to keep them. He's much more able than we are. So do you trust the Lord with your family? Do you trust the Lord with your friends? That's what Paul did. Verses 24 and 25. They passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. So what they're doing is they're going back. You know, we've been following along with them on this missionary journey. They've been going up through Galatia and then over to the east and back down and making this circle in what is now Turkey. And now they're just going back the way they came. And they went back up through all these churches and revisited them and encouraged them and appointed elders. And now they're going back where they started. Um, They leave Antioch of Pisidia and they travel south through Pisidia back down to the region of Pamphylia, which is on the southern coast of Turkey. And they return to Perga, which is a city that was mentioned when they first got there, when they first landed. doesn't say anything about it. But now it says that they spoke the word there. They stopped and they preached. Luke doesn't tell us what the results were, if any, to their preaching in Perga. And we don't really know. I know that Church history records that later on there was a church there and there were even some Christian martyrs there. But we don't know what happened this time. But Luke's purpose in Acts is not to give us every historical detail. It's to show us the big picture of what's happening all over the world as Christ continues to build His church by the power of His Spirit working through His people and His gospel going forth. And so we keep going. We keep going. When they'd spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. So Antioch was where they started, the church at Antioch. And they had been sent out on this missionary journey from Antioch and Syria which is kind of confusing because one of the towns that they planted a church in was Antioch, 
in Galatia, Pisidia and Antioch. Two different towns, two different places, two different countries. But they returned to their home church there in Antioch in Syria. The church that commissioned them and sent them out. In verse 27 it says, When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. When they get there, they get the church together, they report everything that's happened, particularly how God has, has opened the door of faith for the, for the Gentiles, for the gospel to advance. Now, you know what strikes me in this? Paul and Barnabas are apostles. They're apostles. Paul is writing Scripture. He's been given apostolic authority and the Lord is speaking through him. But they're still accountable to the local church. They're still submitted to their local church. I think that speaks volumes. All of God's work in this world is done in and through His church. Through His people. Through that lampstand. This church is a lampstand and God is working through this church to shine His light into Lake Charles. Into this area. And He's doing that through all of His churches all over the world. Paul and Barnabas are important, yes. But they're only important as they're instruments in His hand. He's the one doing the work. And you know what? If, if Paul and Barnabas see themselves as submitted to and accountable to the local church, I have to say that that's the model for mission work and church planning for everybody. Missionaries ought to be raised up and sent out by the local church. And they ought to be accountable. Verse 28. And they spent a long time with the disciples. I, I love that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to include this statement. God is not in a hurry. God's not in a hurry. You know, from our perspective, that's kind of hard to understand. You know, you've got Paul and Barnabas. You've got this power team that they've gone out and they have been taking the gospel to the nations. There's a whole world out there that needs to hear the gospel. We need to get in gear. We need to move this thing along. Man, things have got to be done. It says they spent a long time with the disciples. You know why? Because they're following God's timetable. They're not following their own. God's not in a hurry. God is sovereign over time. God is sovereign over history. He's sovereign over people. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be quick to obey God when He calls us to do something. We definitely should. What I'm saying is that we shouldn't be in a rush. We shouldn't be in a rush to do things on our schedule. We need to submit to God. Our job is not to build Christ's church. Did you know that? My job is not to build this church. Jesus said, I will build my church. He's building His church. All I am 
as the pastor and the preacher here is an instrument in His hands. He's the one doing the work. All Paul and Barnabas were is instruments in the hands of the Lord as He took His Gospel to the nations and advanced His kingdom and built His church. And He worked by His Spirit through them and He did it on His timetable. Before they left on their first message or the first mission, they were elders there in that church in Antioch of Syria. The Lord returned them there after the mission to serve that church and to be available and to minister there and to use them for whatever his purpose was and would be. Now we know from history that Paul that there were lots more missionary journeys that he took the gospel to the nations and it went forth, but God worked it all together. Christ was sovereignly building His church through His Spirit, working in His people. That's what Acts is all about. That's what it was all about then. And you know what? That's what it's all about today. God, Christ is sovereignly building His church and calling His people to Himself using cracked clay pots, broken vessels, we get to be used by Him for His glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You, oh, that You are advancing Your kingdom of light and life into this world of death. That there, even though there's opposition and there's darkness and the world pushes back, that you just continue to move forward and you continue to take ground. You continue to save your people and that you have done it because you love us. Oh Lord, I pray that you give us a little insight into what drove Paul. The love that you that He saw that you had toward Him and giving yourself for Him. Lord, I just pray that each one of us see that. That we're inspired to get up and walk back into that city. To go back and approach that person who really needs to know you. To share the Gospel with them. Just to love them even though they may have spoken harshly to us or mocked us or, or not give us the time of day. Even though they may do things to harm us, Lord, I pray that You help us to imitate You and the love that You've shown us. Lord, we thank You for all these things. In Jesus' name.